So this morning, if you want to go ahead and flip on over, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We are now in the third week, I reckon it is, of our new series, the basic series um, that we're going through uh, with Francis Chan. And this week is over following Jesus. The other weeks have been fearing God and talking about that kind of stuff. Uh, Pastor Troy has. And this week, we're going to talk about following Jesus, what that means. And for the next two weeks, actually, we're going to be talking about it because that's a lot. That, that entails a lot about following Jesus. And so as you're flipping over and as you're thinking about the concept of just what following Jesus is, I want you to think about this, church. What is your most precious possession? What is your most precious possession? You know, the world has plenty of just trinkets and devices to offer as to value, that are valuable. You know, some actual things that people own might be valuable to some, but just totally irrelevant to others. I want you to think about some of the most expensive things that you've heard about people owning. Maybe for some people it's a uh, super fancy car. You know, I read a story about a guy who bought a, I think it was a 1962 Ferrari GT something. I don't know those things. But it was valued at around $35 million. And he bought that. And he just stored it in his garage, basically, is what he bought it for. $35 million. I'll never make that much in my lifetime. I'll probably only make half that or even a third of that in my lifetime. All my years of work combined. This guy just blows it on a car. And so, to him, that was valuable. Maybe to you, it's a big fancy computer or iPhone. You can actually get iPhones that are diamond plated and have actual gold backing on them and stuff. And they, they run for about $3 million. Any of the ladies in here, maybe you value nice handbags. You know, I know of like coach and stuff like that. And Kate Spade and all. I know some of these lingo terms of these fancy designer purses, but there are some purses that are valued upwards of nearly $10 million just for a purse. Now, I'm not trying to diminish that if that's your thing, $10 million for a purse. That's, that's crazy. Or maybe you're big into watches. I know watches can be a big thing for people because it's kind of like some bling. You can you show off, you know, like, oh, look at this. You know, or maybe you're like me and you just buy the $9 ones at Walmart, you know, every few weeks when that battery dies because you don't even want to replace the battery. I know my roommate in college, he actually valued watches a lot. His name was Josh and his love for watches developed, oh, probably about three years ago. He went to visit his uncle. His uncle lives in New York City. Uncle's super wealthy, has a collection of watches worth right at 1.6 to $2 million. Um, and the watch collection has about six to eight watches in it, something like that. So just do that math. Yeah, those watches are expensive. But anyway, this love for watches, he, he learned all these, all these different like trades about watches and stuff. I don't even know the words. I'm trying to act like I do, but I don't. I don't understand anything. Watches aren't a big deal to me. But I remember... On graduation day, um, him walking across the stage, we all did, you know, me and him graduated together. And he, we came back to our place and his grandparents were there. His grandparents were the ones who raised him. And uh, they were so proud of him and they gave him a graduation gift. And it was a watch. And forgive me, I don't know the name of it, you know, because like I said, not that big of a deal to me. But the watch he told me was valued at around five to $6,000 of what his grandparents got him for a graduation gift. And he was ecstatic. He was, he was, I mean, he burst into tears basically and was like, thank you so much. And so what is valuable to some people is totally irrelevant to others. It's like, I couldn't care if you bought me a $10 watch. That's just as good as a $5,000 watch to me. But some people value things more than others, whatever that might be in your case. And so these cherished possessions are obviously cherished by the people who possess them. 
But I want you to think about what is your most precious possession. We're all, we all should have the same most precious possession because it's not a thing. According to the words of Jesus, your most prized possession is your soul. Your soul is infinitely more precious and valuable than anything or anybody in this life. It will last when the sun and the moon and the stars have all gone cold and dark. Whenever everything just doesn't exist anymore. When the only thing that's here is when the earth gets replaced by the new heaven and the new earth. You know, there was a time at one point when you did not exist. You know, we all did not exist at one point. But from now on, there will never be a time when you don't exist. Because when you're born, you have a soul. And that soul will live forever from that point on. Depending on the decisions you make here on earth, whether you spend it in heaven or in hell. No matter what it is, there will never be a time when you don't exist, technically. And so, your soul will exist long after your physical life is over. Either in heaven, with God, or hell, separated from God, just like I said. And so this truth is too important to miss. And so I want to read a few verses today, just simply talking about what it means to follow Jesus. And that's in Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 27 through 38. Let's read that this morning. It says this, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're grateful and we're thankful to just be in your house this morning. God, even though we're missing a few people, let that not bother us this morning. God, help us to just come expecting, Lord, just a blessing. God, Lord, I pray that you would just rid us of all distractions. God, whatever we're thinking, whatever's in our heart and in our, our head this morning, our worries, our fears... God, just help us to get rid of those for this morning, God, and just listen to what your word says, God. Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to be a better follower of you. To your name we pray. Amen. So this message this morning is about discipleship, following Jesus. We see here that Jesus has an interesting interaction with his disciples, especially Simon Peter. You know, Peter's kind of the main dude here besides Jesus in this passage. And then he gives us steps of discipleship, basically. We throw the word disciple around a lot in church lingo. You know, people outside of the church kind of look at it and they're like, what does that even mean? Um, but we here in the church, we throw that around a lot. What it means to be a disciple or go to discipleship groups or whatever it might be. We throw that word around a lot. 
but we might not understand what it actually means. The best translation of this New Testament word is that of a pupil or a follower. It captures the idea of being a lifelong follower, though, not just a temporary follower. It doesn't mean you follow Jesus just for a day or for a week, a month, a few years. It's a 24-7 lifelong commitment to keep following and to keep learning. Jesus doesn't call us to be a believer only. He calls us each of us to be his disciple. And beyond all of that, he calls us all to be disciple makers. And so, as Christians, as I've said here, we're followers of Christ. But have you ever stopped to consider what that actually means? Following Jesus, what does that mean? There are many things about Jesus that anyone would want to you know, emulate or to talk about. Because they're good things. You know, love, compassion, righteousness. You know, we're like, man, if I could just love like Jesus... Or if I had the love and compassion that Jesus had towards these people, I would be doing great. And that's what I want. That's what we strive for. And that's good. But do you really want to live like Jesus? When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he meant exactly that. He wanted them to go with him from place to place and from village to village and doing what he did and and seeing the ministry. And that also meant doing the hard things. While people admired Jesus, his devotion to his God-given mission caused him to ultimately be rejected and crucified. What he did was hurtful to so many. They took offense to that. And so they decided to hurt Jesus. They decided to hurt his disciples. And so following Jesus means that you have to be willing to go through some of that stuff. Jesus told his disciples plainly that he would suffer and die. Then he called them to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him. You know, we all want the blessings that come from following Jesus. We do. We want, we want the good things. We want, we want the, the, the love that Jesus gives us, any help he can give us. We want all that. But if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ, we need to consider what following Jesus is actually about. The call to follow Jesus is a call to deny yourself, take up your cross, and walk in his footsteps. If we're going to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we need to understand who Jesus is, why he came to earth, and what he calls us to do. And so that leads directly into the first point this morning of simply who Jesus is. And we're going to look at the scriptures here, basically verses 27 through 30, this account of Jesus and his disciples and Peter. You know, in a sense, Jesus basically asks his disciples, he says, who do you say I am? Peter, who usually says the wrong thing, gets it right for once. He goes on to say that you are the Christ. You are. Are the Christ. This is about midway through Jesus' three-year ministry. He's um, basically, you know, he's usually pursued by a mob of people wanting some sort of like miracle, them to be fed, to take care of, you know, heal me basically. So Jesus and the 12 are we're getting pretty tired. They're like there's people all around us all the time and we're just tired of it. And so we need to just get away for a little bit. And so Jesus basically here is leading them on a retreat to a northern city in Galilee called Caesarea Philippi. And this was a this was a pagan city. Um, basically, there was a pa- pagan Roman city that had a temple dedicated to this half man, half goat god named Pan. And um, basically, in this town, there's a huge spring that kind of rushed from a cave in the side of a massive mountain. And this temple was built over this gushing spring there, and this was known as the Gates of Hades. And human sacrifice was practiced there, and so it was a pretty wicked city. But Jesus was going there. Because many scholars believe he visited the area because he knew there wouldn't be any Jews there. You see, the Jews were the ones who were, who were bugging him at the time. Like, 
gosh, like heal us. You know, if you're Jesus, come heal me. You know, do whatever you got to do to take care of me. But obviously, if he went to this pagan city, he could be left alone for a little while because they're going to be like, oh, Jesus, okay, you do whatever you do, basically, because they didn't care. They worshiped this half man, half goat God thing. And so this was a time for Jesus to evaluate basically where he had been and where they were headed. In the way of review, he asked the guys what people were saying about him. Some of the disciples spoke up and they claimed that people were saying that he was John the Baptist or, you know, you're Elijah. Or some people say that you're a prophet, basically. And, you know, they had a good laugh at those answers, basically. You know, some people say you're Elijah, prophet, you know, that's what people are saying you are. But, but Jesus basically pushes that aside and says, no, who do you say that I am? I'm not asking what other people are saying. Who do you say that I am? And that's when Peter goes on to say, you know, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Lord. And I'm sure at this moment, it's kind of when stuff gets real, basically. It's the laughter kind of dies down and, the, you know, their throat probably got a little dry. And they, they said, you know, you're, you're the Lord. You know, growing up in church, I was blessed to grow up in church. Probably as many of you, you have, or maybe you come to church now, that's fine. You hear a lot about what people say about the Lord. You know, you grow up hearing that Jesus loves you. That, that you can know what the Bible says if you just read it. Maybe you listen to a pastor preach every Sunday. You know, you come here. Or maybe you've gone somewhere else. If you're like me, you know, basically growing up in a Christian home, we read the Bible every night. We prayed. You know, and it was all about, you know, my parents said this. My parents said this, blah, blah, blah. And we, it basically kind of shapes and molds us into our beliefs. We're not aiming for those to be, but we believe because that's what our parents believe. Or we believe that's because that's what the pastor said. You know, working with students, I see this firsthand. A lot of the students that come through the youth group, you know, you'll be talking to them. And you'll ask, you know, well, how do you know, basically, that Jesus died on the cross for you? That's just a simple, say a simple question like that. And they'll, they'll always, most of the time, more times than not, they'll always say something along the lines of, well, my, my mom told me that blah, blah, blah. Or the pastor said this, blah, 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 in your sermon. Or, Austin, you said this, or whatever. More times than not, they never revert back to saying, well, the Bible says blah, whatever. You know, answering the question, filling the blank. It's always someone else said. And if we're being honest with ourselves, many of us are still like that today. You were like that when you were a kid, teenager. And now it's been with you all through your life. And your whole faith is based upon what someone else has said. You've never actually investigated it yourself. You've never actually gone through the Bible and actually read it for yourself and said, I know this because this is what I read. I know that's what the gospels say. I know that's what the Old Testament says or, or whatever, you know, fill in the blank of whatever story you tried to trying to defend. But so my question for you this morning is, have you believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord? You know, there's a passage we, we probably all know in Romans 10 Verses 9 and 10, it says this, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. You know, just simply saying a prayer does not save you. Guys, coming up here to the altar and, and just saying, God save me, you know, it doesn't work. You have to actually believe the things you're saying. Your faith can't be based off of, well, I believe because that's what my dad believed. Or that's what my pastor believes, so I'm going to do it. That's not good enough. Guys, you have to believe because that's what you believe. And so, 
Have you believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord? You know, when we have the joy of baptizing someone here at Cecilia, you know, it's a, it's a great day. It's a good celebration. We fill the baptistry up and we're happy. We sing songs and we, after it's all said and done, you know, we clap and we praise them. And they come down front and we shake their hands or whatever. And we say congratulations. And it's something to be celebrated. But one of the important things we, we do is when we get them in the baptistry, you know, we simply, we talk to them, we introduce them to the crowd and we say, so-and-so, who is your Lord? And these new believers confess, you know, they say that Jesus is my Lord. That is the first step of discipleship. I'm not saying that baptism is where it all starts. It starts, though, when you actually admit that Jesus is Lord. When you realize who Jesus is, not because it's what somebody else said, but when you say that Jesus is Lord, that's where discipleship starts. There are a lot of other steps that from moving on, from getting saved, getting saved is just starting out. Basically, that, it, doesn't, it doesn't end there, guys. It just, that's where it starts. So the next point is you have to realize why Jesus came. And we're looking at the account in verses 31 through 33, where Jesus says something kind of unexpected to Peter. You never really expect Jesus to call one of his disciples Satan, but you see that he does here. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have, my, have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus explained the marks of a true disciple. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And that's found in verses 33 and 34. And so I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second, or maybe any of the other disciples' shoes. And you're doing this, and they're talking basically about what all had happened and stuff. And Jesus, basically, you hear Peter, or you're the one who says, you know, no, you're the Christ. You know, he says, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. So Peter makes this powerful confession. And if you think about it, he's probably feeling pretty good about himself. You know, he's like, I finally said something right for once. You know, Jesus isn't rebuking me finally. He's saying good things. You know, but at that moment, Peter became proud. He became proud, Peter. And this is obviously, we go on to see that Peter struggled with, you know, kind of selfishness and pridefulness. But in this moment, he did. He became proud, Peter. And while he was busy patting himself on the back, Jesus began telling the disciples the schedule for the rest of his ministry. He told them that he would suffer greatly and that he would ultimately be rejected by the Jewish leaders who would kill him. But after three days, he would rise again. He would rise from the dead. Proud Peter didn't want to hear anything about the failure, about the, about the persecutions, the suffering, and the death. He was on the winning team. Why should he have to hear that? He, he's just like, Jesus, we're on the winning side here. You know, he was at the right hand of the Messiah. That meant riches and honor and glory, he thought. So Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And so I want you to picture this. Peter, we'll even call him a big fisherman. I don't know how big he was, but we'll call him a big, even if he's a big guy. This big fisherman, rough dude, pulls these to the side. And, and he's basically like, dude, I don't want to hear any more about this, about this silly talk you've got going on about dying. You know, we've got a good thing going here. Basically saying, don't ruin it. We're going to win big. Don't be talking down about all this stuff. You know, we've got us feeling good. That deserved a real rebuke. Because Jesus basically looked at him. He, in front of the other disciples, it wasn't right there in front of just Peter. He looked at Peter And he looked at the other disciples and he straight up said, get behind me, Satan. 
You're thinking like a man, not like God. We see here in this moment that Peter was filled with pride, selfish pride. His ego was in charge. Jesus said you can never become a disciple unless you deny yourself, is what he's saying. That doesn't mean you have to deny yourself something, you know, like sleep or food in order to serve Jesus, in order to put yourself to the extreme. Some people say you do. I don't believe that you do. But what he's saying is here, it means you have to deny yourself, your inner person. Think of yourself as your ego, basically, or the big I, you know, like I want this, I do this. Because we're sinners, our human nature makes us self-centered. We put this big ego, this big I, at the center of our own little universe, and everything revolves around our ego, what we want. I want you to imagine your life as a circle. And in the middle of your life, there's a throne. In this self-directed life, you have the big, the big I, the big, the big self on the throne in the middle. Christ is in your life, but you're calling the shots. You know, you say, yeah, I go to church. I love Christ. Christ is the Lord of my life. The smaller circles around you represent your interests, and they are all out of balance. Some characteristics here are self-directed. Legalistic attitude, impure thoughts, guilt, worry, discouragement, a critical spirit, maybe frustration, fear. The list can go on and on. But this list includes a poor prayer life. And no desire to study God's word at all. You just come to church on Sundays. You hear the preacher preach. Maybe even listen to Christian music on the radio. That's good. But other than that, it doesn't mean much. Does this sound like your life? Does this describe your life? Is your ego at the center of your existence? Because a good little, kind of it's kind of corny, I know. But an acronym for ego is simply edging God out. Because if you put your ego at the middle, the center of your life, you you are going to edge God out. You're going to push him to the side and say, I'm going to do what I want. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for being the God of of my life, the Lord of my life. You're good and all. I'll see you in heaven someday, but I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick the career I'm going to work. I'm going to live in the house I want to live in. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Thank you for everything, but that's it. In the life of a self-centered person, it's all about me. It's all about what I think, what I feel, what I want. But a disciple of Jesus says, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about the kingdom. It's about so much more than just me. Then in verse 34, Jesus gave us the next step when he said, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. A person carrying a cross has only one destination. And that destination is death. It's always a one-way trip. For you to take up a cross doesn't mean that you just carry one in your pocket or you wear one around your neck or anything like that. Other people might think that their cross to bear is some sort of physical ailment. You know, maybe I've heard people, you know, complain about their, maybe their arthritis or whatever. And they're just like, I guess it's just my cross I'll have to bear, you know. And while I'm not diminishing, you know, physical ailments or diseases or anything like that. But when Jesus is talking here, he's not talking about aches and pains. He's talking about dying. It isn't physical death, but honestly death to self. After you have denied yourself, you must constantly subject this big I to death. In Luke's account of this same story, Jesus says that we must take up his cross daily. Mark doesn't use the word daily, but Luke does. He says, take up your cross daily. So this isn't a one-time action. 
actually, since all of our sins were nailed to the to, with Jesus on the cross, you know, and since our ego is the basically the essence of our sin problem, the big I was already crucified with Jesus. We just have to visualize it. You know, one of my favorite verses for a long time is Galatians two twenty. Simply says this: It says, "I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith." And the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, for years I just quoted this verse. It's a, it's a good verse. Just, you know, point blank, you read it and like, yeah, that's right. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's good, you know. It's a good reference to make with students. I can use it in Sunday school. I can make, it, make myself sound good when I'm talking to my friends, you know, who's struggling. You know, give this little verse. Or when I'm leading someone to the Lord, you can say this stuff. But, if we, but after I got to think about it, you know, I, I didn't really understand what it meant. I just couldn't sink my teeth into it. It was so spiritual that it was kind of trying to like chew Cool Whip, essentially. Have you ever tried to chew like whipped cream? It's, you can't really chew it. You just swallow it, basically. But one day, I feel like the Lord gave me insight of how I could apply this in a practical way. It's really so simple that I basically almost missed it. But I really was someone who was literally crucified with Christ. And we'll get to meet him in heaven someday. And this was the thief on the cross beside Jesus. You know, as he hung there, he knew his life was about to end. He looked over at Jesus who was bleeding and dying the same time he was. And the last thing Jesus looked like to him was probably a king. Jesus didn't look like no king on the cross to most people around him. You know, it looked like some just human who was dying and being tormented. But he said, the thief said to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that simple profession of faith was enough. Jesus said to him, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guys, you know, when we're crucified with Christ, we'll be like that thief. He no longer cared about what people thought about him. You know, people thought he deserved the cross. And by all means, in those standards, he probably did. You know, he was a thief. He was, he was a dirty person. So people looked at him and that's all they saw was just a thief. And he had so many people probably talk bad about him and slander him. But guess what? He no longer cared about what people thought about him. His ego and his pride were long gone. People could have yelled that he was ugly and stupid, whatever. It didn't bother him because he was crucified with Christ. He didn't, he didn't fear the wrath of the Romans for talking to Jesus because he was crucified with Christ. So imagine while he was being crucified with Christ, this, this guy was hanging on the cross, a thief who just made this profession of faith. And he's literally looking the Savior in the eyes as he's dying. They're both dying basically together. And just think while he's there, maybe some, some big hotshot Roman soldier rides up in his brand new chariot and these nice horses. You know, I'm sure the last thing he said on his mind was, man, I'd like to have one of those. Or maybe in the distance he saw this beautiful house or whatever they had back then, you know. I'm sure the last thing he said was, man, I I wish I could have had a house like that. Or maybe even a Sadducee rolled up in his nice, nice maybe robe and this good looking like prayer felt thing around his neck. You know, they like to wear in those societies. We wouldn't think it was that big of a deal. But, you know, in their society it was a big deal. They wanted to look good. I'm sure the last thing on his mind was saying, hey man, where can I get one of those? No, none of that stuff mattered anymore because he only cared about Jesus at that moment. 
He was looking our Savior in the eyes because he was being crucified with Christ. So maybe today you need to put yourself on that cross with Jesus and look into his eyes. Because when you do that, you lose the desire to want anything else. So many of us don't have our eyes looked on Jesus. Don't have our eyes constantly looking upward towards heaven. We live our lives so me-centered and so self-focused. We want this. We need that. We desire this. This is where I want to be without even considering Jesus. We get worried and we get stressed. You know, we have this void in our life that, that not even money or possessions can fill. You know, we have the biggest house on the street. We have the brand new car. We have, we have all this money in the bank account. But yet you still lay awake at night because there's something missing in your life. And that's because Jesus isn't there. Jesus was sent to fill that void in our life. It's a void that nothing else could fill. Without Jesus, there would be no hope for us. Just like that thief on the cross beside Jesus, Jesus came so that we would have a purpose and a reason to live. Because without Jesus, there is no reason for us to live. Jesus came to fill that void. The last point this morning is basically, do you know what it means to follow Jesus? Down in verse 34, we just read it a while ago, but Jesus continued and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. But the next thing he says, and follow me. Following Jesus means to walk in his footsteps, simply put. Now, this doesn't mean you have to live a perfect life to be a disciple because we know that's impossible. We know it's impossible to live a perfect life. You cannot live a sinless life because we're humans. That's just who we are. But you must desire to follow Jesus. You must desire to want the things that God wants. It means a will to choose to obey God in every area. Because you see, God is able to judge us on the basis of our desire and our direction rather than our actual performance. We get so discouraged a lot of times, like, I'm just not good enough. You know, like, I've messed up, I've done this, blah, blah, blah. This, this thing didn't go well, I'm not a good teacher. Whatever it is. You're trying to make all these excuses up of not serving God. When in fact, God doesn't care how good you are. God just wants us to want the things that he wants. And your actions and your performances are going to be based off of your intentions, your motives, your heart. Because that is what God truly wants. Just like in Psalms, and the psalmist says in Psalm 37, he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because if we delight ourselves in the Lord, we're going to want the things that he wants. It's not that he'll give us the nicest car, the, more, the most money in the bank account. Because none of that matters to God. He's going to give us a desire to love people, to serve people, and to help raise the kingdom. Imagine, going back to the circle, imagine another circle that represents your life. But in this picture, self has stepped down from the throne and Jesus is in control. Your various interests are all in balance. Some of the characteristics of this Christ-directed life are love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. You know, the fruits of the Spirit. It's a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is on the throne of your life, you have a powerful prayer life. You trust and obey God. You trust His promises. You're reading His Word. You know what you know because... It is what you know. It's not what someone else knows. It's what you know. 
Does this represent your life? This is what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. Guys, it's time that we stop wasting our lives. If you're not following Jesus, if you're not, if, if, you're, a, if you're a Christian and you're committed to following Jesus, but yet you're not doing anything in order to follow Jesus, you're wasting your life. Jesus put us on this earth to, first of all, to come to know him, to grow in our walk, and then to become a disciple maker, to lead others to Christ. And if you're not doing those things, you're wasting your life. Don't waste your life. Instead, lose yourself in God's cause. You know, Jesus often spoke in parables and paradox. And this is one of those paradoxical statements. On the surface, it seems contradictory. But when you dig below the surface, you see the truth. He says, you know, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What is good? What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, but yet lose his soul? You know, a lot of people don't even know what a soul is or what their soul is. They don't know they have a soul. You know, if you have an iPhone, you know that there's this cool little feature called Siri on it. Siri is dumber than a box of rocks most of the time. But one time me and my friends were talking about this concept of, of the soul, you know, what it means, you know, Jesus saves our soul, but what is our soul? And so w- one time we were just sitting around and we just simply asked Siri, we said, hey, Siri, do you have a soul? And her reply was kind of interesting. Siri simply replied and she said, I've never really thought about it. The sad thing is, is there's many people who would answer the same way. Many of us go our whole lives and we don't think about the concept of our soul, let alone anyone else's soul. You know, your soul is the real you who lives inside your body. Jesus has told us to love God with all of our being, with all of our heart, with all of our soul and strength, with your mind. You know, our soul is what does those things. Our bodies are just vessels to be used while we're here on earth. Our soul is the thing that's going to go to heaven with us or to hell with you, you know, if you choose not to accept Christ. But we all have a soul. And so are you... A disciple of Jesus. Do you believe and have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? Are you denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus? Are you willing to lose yourself in God's great cause? You know, I want to end with a story here about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might have heard that name. He goes along back to the kind of World War II era of Germany. Um, but he was a German pastor who knew a thing or two about discipleship. He wrote a book actually entitled The Cost of Discipleship. And he was a major opposer of Hitler during the World War II era. He actively spoke out against him. And there was this one instance where he was on the radio. And, you know, Hitler at this time was trying to use the church to basically move his agenda along. You know, telling, telling the churches that, you know, this is what God would want us to do. You know, Jesus um, commanded me to do this. Manipulation at its finest. But Bonhoeffer was speaking out against this basically. He was on a radio show in Germany at this point, and you know, he basically said something along the lines of, you know, like Hitler is not our Lord. Like God would never tell us to do this. Jesus was one of love, and just the story was going on. I'm kind of butchering his words for time's sake, but he said something along those lines, and it was in the middle of this interview they unplug him off the radio because Hitler obviously had control, and Hitler was hearing this, and Hitler didn't want anything to do with it, and so Hitler had him arrested, and he spent two years in concentration camps. And three weeks before the war ended in Germany, on April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was led out of the prison 
with several other people, and they were ordered to strip naked and were led to the gallows to be hung. A physician who was witnessing this, this event and some of Bonhoeffer's ministry up to this point, he, said, he wrote, he said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God had heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued just a few seconds later. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God, end quote. So in Bonhoeffer's last letter to a pastor friend in England, he wrote this as well. He said, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. You may be thinking, you know, how sad. This man lost his life because he followed God. You know, that's something we don't think about a lot in today's world. And real, if you think about it, this was not that long ago. That was just in World War II that this man lost his life because he was preaching and teaching what the Bible says and what Jesus stands for. And, you know, you might be thinking, man, that's sad. Like, he, he, he died for what he was standing up for. And, like, that's just horrible. You know, why would Jesus allow this to happen? But he didn't lose his life. He gained it. That's what the Bible even says. He lost himself in a greater cause than just himself. And as a result, he has impacted millions of disciples of Jesus. So I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. What is your most precious possession? It's your soul and your relationship with Jesus. Make sure you aren't wasting it. Instead, lose it in a cause greater than yourself. Because, you know what, following Jesus is not easy. But when we truly set out to follow him, we find that he is leading us to life. And when Jesus went to the cross, three days later, he arose again. When we die to ourselves, we find that we're really gaining life. When we choose to lay down ourselves, that's when we find our lives. Following Jesus is not easy, but we know that it's right. We know that there's nothing else worth living for. Because when we follow Jesus, the gate is narrow and the way is hard, but the narrow and difficult road leads us to life. So as we get ready to close out this morning, I want you to think about it. If you, if you call yourself a Christian and you, you know you've made that decision, are you actually following Jesus? Or was that decision based upon what someone else knew? Or was it based upon what you know? In that same sense, if, if you're a Christian, are you actually following Jesus? Are you doing the things that the word commands us to do? Are you, are you making disciples? Are you living the life that Jesus commands us to live? Are you denying yourself? Are you still making all these self-centered decisions? Because if we're Christians, we have to place God at the throne of our lives. In the center of all that has to be Jesus. That means you have a good prayer life. That means you're reading God's word and you're trusting his promises. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to advance the gospel and to see the kingdom grow. Are you doing those things? For those of you in here who maybe have never made a profession of faith, you don't really understand what that is. All you've heard me say is a bunch of church lingo about disciples and Jesus and salvation and souls and stuff. That's okay if you're confused. Come talk to me. Go talk to Travis or somebody, somebody here. Don't, don't let today go by without finding out what that really means. Because I promise you, it'll be the best decision you'll ever make. You know, following Jesus is difficult. 
He never said it was going to be easy. He even tells his people, tells his disciples, like, man, it's going to be hard. Peter thought it was going to be easy. But Jesus says, no, it's going to be hard. But I promise you, following Jesus is always going to be worth it. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for examples in the Bible who give us, who give us these examples of just what it means to be a true disciple of you. God, I pray that if there's for us in here, God, that we would learn how to be just a better follower. God, forgive us, Lord. We live such ego-centered lives, such just me-centered lives. God, I pray that we would stop doing that. God, help us to just truly live for you and with just an abandoned heart, God, and just a mindset, our eyes focused on you. And God, I, I pray for the people in here who maybe have never made a profession of faith. God, I pray that you would convict hearts. God, convict minds in this moment, God. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.